the mid-afternoon energy slump. And now I've, maybe some of you have heard me tell this story before, but I'll tell you, for those who haven't, partly because it's funny, and the funniness might help you wake up <laughs> at the beginning of the afternoon. Way back in, it must have been 1990, I think, probably, I was living in Dharamsala in northern India, and a friend of mine was helping uh, to put together a retreat center, like in a very sort of makeshift style, to run a 10-day Goenka-style Vipassana retreat. And they worked really hard to get it all together. And then by the time the retreat began, as is the style in, uh, in that tradition, the people who'd been building the center then served the course, right? So they help with the cooking and then outside of their duties of managing the details, they also go and sit along with the, the, the rest of the students. And at the end of that re- first retreat, one of the students went to thank the teacher and said, oh, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed the retreat and I've got a lot out of it. I really, you know, now I want to learn the advanced practice. And the teacher said, well, you know, of course you can come back to another retreat, but you know, they're you know, there's no mystery here. This is, you know, the way you've been practicing, that's what we do. And he said, no, no, no. But the staff, they've been, I've been watching them and they've been doing a different practice to me. And the teacher said, no, really, I assure you they're doing the same practice. He says, no, no, I can see when I watch them, they sit like this. So, you can, the, good, the moral of the story is, when sleepiness comes, you can content yourself with the knowledge that it's advanced practice. <laughs> so, was it helpful yesterday? A little bit of movement, just to vivify and... Uh, like we were saying, both kind of waking up the cells that's supportive at this time of afternoon and that sense of really using sensation and movement to kind of to, to lead attention, awareness really into your bodily life more fully. So in a rather untechnical and uh, make it up as we go a long way that we did yesterday, let's uh, stand up together. Like yesterday, I'll offer some uh, reflections and explorations, and then also, like yesterday, the opportunity to have some uh, discussion and exploration together. And uh, I'll probably speak for a shorter time than yesterday to make plenty of room for any discussion and exploration together. And um, somebody asked me just at lunchtime, would it be okay this afternoon if I asked you about such and such a thing? So I said, yes, whatever, welcome. So I just want to on the, firstly say, particularly in the afternoon, in the mornings I, I try to keep the questions and answers kind of uh, mostly related to the thread of formal practice that we're doing through the day. 
but in the afternoons, the scope of what is an acceptable area of questions is infinitely wide. Doesn't mean I'll know the first thing about what to say in response, right? But the invitation is infinitely wide. And the second thing might be, and maybe I'll regret this, but let's see. The second thing would be the invitation to be bold. I think people are a little hesitant or shy or often don't ask the questions that they would really like to ask. So it's all welcome. And if it's, that means that it takes the form of a challenging question, or I don't mind. Yeah. Meditation practice, while we can cultivate meditative qualities in any moment, any situation, etc. Formal meditation practice, like we explored a little bit yesterday, has certain optimizing conditions for it. This is, this is one of them, right? And come here to practice today with others in a suitable place, with the support of teachings and guidance, etc., those are, those are some optimizing conditions for meditation practice. And those of you who are following with the live stream, you know, it's different than being here in the room. And so you also, with the situation available to you, these are certain optimizing conditions. Right? And yet I would imagine that you also, there's more chance to, be, uh, to become preoccupied with the stuff that may be going on around one's home, by the phone that may ring, by family members, or the, your cat, or whatever else is going on, right? So we, we see and feel and recognize the, the benefit of optimizing conditions for meditation. And also, as we explored yesterday, meditation being a kind of integral and yet very much a partial component of the fullness of what we mean by Dharma practice. And Dharma practice doesn't really have particular optimizing conditions. There's some conditions that we might naturally recognize as supportive and harmonious and pleasant, right? And we might, of course, understandably, want to make the most. Just like anybody in any field, it's nice to be around peers, right? It's nice to be around people who share my sensibilities and my values and my aspirations and my worldview, right? Whether that's a Dharma worldview or equally if it's a political worldview or whatever it is. It's, it's, it's like it's relieving and comforting to be around peers. So we might choose, as much as we're able, supportive conditions, in which our practice, we might say, can thrive. And yet, as we very well know in our lives, we can't always choose supportive conditions. And yet, there is no situation, there's no moment, there's no place, there's no uh, people with which one cannot cultivate one's practice. Whether the situation is supportive or not, of course we prefer the supportive condition, but that's very secondary to our capacity to Notice our reactivity. Cultivate qualities of listening or patience or spaciousness or whatever it might be. And in fact, 
too much of just hanging out in supportive conditions actually can, um, you know, I mean, like we, like we see in what's called the echo chamber syndrome. Does that familiar if I use that term? Yeah, yeah like around the whole political. One hang, if one hangs out too much with people that share one's own world view exclusively, one ends up with the mistaken impression that that is the world view, right? That that is the political view, that that's how we all think, only to discover in a rather uh, uh, <laughs> shocking way that that's not the whole story. And similarly, you know, for all the benefit and beauty and uh, richness that I've found in Dharma environments, God, it's important to hang out outside of those as well. My, my teacher said to me one day, well, of course, one has to take refuge in the Sangha, but one also needs to take refuge from the Sangha. <laughs> <laughs> so, while we can appreciate and benefit from supportive conditions, we can hopefully recognize that this entire universe, the whole, the whole realm of all experience, in a way, is the optimizing condition for Dharma practice, for the cultivation of freeness and relaxation and wise responsiveness, etc. And all the ways we spoke about that and the refining of, etc. yesterday. And much of the focus, really, of uh, our days together this weekend has been how to um, bring those optimizing conditions, bring the possibilities of practice, and to bring the liberating fruits of practice to, in, to, you know, to bring them home to ourselves in as immediate way as possible. We spent some time yesterday, you know, looking at the kind of the tendency to exoticize a sense of liberation through statuary, through ritual, through a sense of ancientness and lineage, through the, the associations, unhelpfully, that we might have with ideas of enlightenment, etc., etc. And how the very, the very tendency to exoticize and to distance a sense of the fruits of practice leaves us kind of disenfranchised, disempowered, disillusioned, and disappointed. The the gap that we make between the ideal called a liberated life, for example, with whatever associations, whatever kind of distorted image that we've made of what it would feel like or look like to, to live in that way, the gap that we make between that ideal... And this way I find myself, that's the gap of our suffering. That's the gap in which we tell ourselves the story of our deficiencies, our inadequacies. So, what we've been doing is trying to speak about liberation, liberating moments, liberating activity, liberating insight in such a way as to see the immediacy of possibility, the immediacy of practice, the immediacy of each freeing moment, each time something is seen, is softened, is met skillfully.
some of you said to me yesterday that it had been helpful going through those kind of very the going through the four noble truths and the eightfold path in the way that we did which was you know what i called a whistle stop tour through them then but in a way of kind of using a sort of certain refreshing or different kind of language for those things a certain reframing of them and we spoke about how you know traditional framing can be a little orthodox or a little um can just get a little tired in some way. I was saying to someone yesterday afternoon how Roland Barthes, the French uh, philosopher, said, all good books ought to be retranslated every 20 years. And, you know, that's certainly true for Dharma, except I think 20 years is too long, actually. Right? Actually, I, I, you know, in a way, every living generation in, within a practice tradition needs to reinvent the forms, tradition, language, practice. Not completely reinvent it, right? No, throw everything, throw the baby out with the bathwater, as it is. But we need to walk this kind of delicate balance between a kind of honoring the lineage and the wisdom and the kind of accumulated skillfulness of many generations and really feeling free to make it up anew. And like the other paradoxes we've explored today, if you only take one side or other of that, Something goes wrong. If you only take the kind of honoring the traditions, then things get ossified, rigidified, orthodoxized, and dogmatized. If you only say, oh, you know, we're going to be all free and we're going to make it up as we go along, then you can go off in all kinds of crazy directions, right? So... That sense of how to kind of, you know, really like respect that which we've, we're the inheritors of and the beneficiaries of. And, and to be willing to find one's own voice, one's own style, one's own response. It's, it's you know, it's interesting to re- reflect that that's what the Buddha did. The Buddha didn't follow a Buddhist path, right? I mean, you know, in, in some ways it's obvious. We say, oh, you know, Christ wasn't a Christian, Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. And yet, really, what that was, if we, there's, it's easy for us to feel ourselves or to be accused by others, I've run into this sometimes, of somehow being heretical or disrespectful or uh, something to a particular tradition because of speaking in such a way or or distorting, that's the accusation sometimes, teachings in such a way that, there, uh, that there's some discontinuity between the, what I'm doing or how I'm speaking and the tradition. But there's a difference between being true to the, I would say, to the letter of Buddhism, if you like, and to being true to the spirit of Buddhism. The spirit of Buddhism, the spirit the Buddha tried to evoke, was don't accept dogma. Don't do things just because they've been done that way. Don't accept something just because other people repeat it. Don't accept something just because it seems reasonable. But, you know, test it in the cauldron of your own experience and find out for yourself. He called these teachings ipahisiko. means come and see, come and find out. What I often call feeling into and finding out about. So actually the Buddha gives us full permission to be heretics right from the word go. 
You know, and the famous, the Kalama Sutta is this, maybe some of you are familiar, is this famous teaching where he speaks to the people of Kalama and basically gives them all the reasons not to believe somebody who's in some position of authority, including himself. No, it's not something one often hears from religious figures. <laughs> so I thought I might make brief reference, having looked at the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, I thought, why not go the whole hog and uh, just look you know, very briefly at the, the three characteristics, or three marks sometimes called, of existence. Which, which um, you know, which again, I've, I found it helpful to just reflect on and try to find a way of expressing those things to myself that actually make sense, that actually really fit my experience, and that actually offer me a way to practice with them, to make them alive, to have my experience match the, the teachings. Because some of the ways I inherited them didn't really feel like that. So anicca, dukkha, anatta, right, are those three you're not familiar with. So sabbe, sankara, anicca. All, how did I first hear it in the monastery? All concocted things are impermanent. <laughs> All compounded things as well. Concocted things, compounded things. Sankara. (laughs) Constructs. That's an everyday word. Why can't we use everyday words? Constructs. Like we know what a construct is. Construct, I think, is a very good word. It fits for physical, you know, constructs. It fits for concept, mental constructs. All constructs are fleeting, transitory. Unreliable. Maybe you would have different language for yourself. But that fits me. There's something, maybe I've just been like too long in the Dharma world, but I can barely hear the word impermanent. Myself. <laughs> it's like, it just, I don't know. Does it, I don't know. Is that me? I mean, impermanent, it's not, doesn't seem ordinary usage enough for me. And it seems like, it seems like Buddhist jargon. No, it works for you. Good. You know, I'm not trying to diss the word. If it works for you, great. But for me, I, so I prefer fleeting, transitory, unreliable. But, it, you know, that's what I say. I, I, like I was saying yesterday, the importance of finding our own vocabulary. If, if inherited vocabulary works for you, no need to try to switch it out for Martin's suggestion, you know. And the way, it's, it's always a, it's sort of challenging to speak about anicca, impermanence, fleetingness. Because it's, such, it's so much Dharma 101 that we, the tendency of course is to think we already know that. I know all about impermanence. I've had plenty of insights into impermanence. But... It's, there's, that's where the juice is. That's the, to me, that's the, the most accessible Dharma gateway to really seeing, knowing, feeling the, the fluid, natural unfolding of life. And that, and that means actually attending to the fleetingness or, or the impermanent quality, if you like, rather than just telling each other that things are impermanent. 
right? which so- sometimes seems to me to be what's going on. Buddhists are busy telling each other that things are impermanent. Right? So, the, how do we? At- how can you attend to that in a way that really brings it alive, moment by moment? Whether it's in the formality of what we call meditation practice, whether it's in one's life, one's work, etc. What are the implications? What might be freeing about any particular situation, a particular the, the political situation that we're involved and concerned with, the a particular difficulty or conflict we might have with a colleague or family member, etc. Anywhere where we feel the rub, the dukkha, it's coming in a minute, right, that part. Anywhere we feel that, what might be helpful about attending to the fact that the, that construct is already is like unstable? That construct is malleable. That construct is fleeting. And therefore, the construct is workable, engageable with. Um, that there's some creativity that's possible there. Because we tend, left to its own devices, mind tends to work in kind of monolithic type terms. Right? It's like that. Oh my God, now it's like that. Right? If I've fallen out with someone, oh my God, and now it's like that. Right? Even just a, a passing mind state. Oh, I'm, it's like that. And even though we sort of know, because I've been doing this Dharma practice thing, I know oh, it, it too will pass, it too will pass, it's impermanent, etc. Right? It's not enough to remind ourselves that. We need to look for the tendency to be monolithic. Do you know what I mean when I say monolithic? To kind of to fixate. And in seeing our fixation we see that it's just that. It's a fixation. It's a, that the, what's given the construct, mental construct, situational construct, what's given it its monolithicness is our fixation. We're constantly giving our experience a solidity it doesn't have. And if, if we're able to see the way we're doing that and just soften the fixation or... Sometimes we might say, just see through the fixation. Then that construct appears differently to us. It appears more workable. It appears more engageable. It appears with the possibility of some creative engagement. Nothing is unworkable. Nothing is unworkable. Sabbe sankara dukkha. That's that. I've I've had to engage that a lot to find a way of it, of uh, practicing with it, expressing it that doesn't feel kind of clunky in some way. How did I first hear it? All conditioned things cause suffering. No, uh, all concocted things are of the nature of suffering. What? All concocted things are the nature of suffering. 
So there's the working, you know, there's different ways. I don't, I don't, I don't report these ways of framing it as any kinds of uh, new versions or new translations. They're just, they're just ways that maybe render these things, like we've been seeing all weekend, render them immediate to our experience. All constructs are stressful. Sabbe sankara dukkha. All constructs are stressful. All constructs are stressful. The construct of any mind state, the construct of any situation, the construct of having a mind and a body and a heart in a world that's busy relating. It's stressful. It just is. Now, the first response might be, well, if all, what do you mean all constructs are stressful? There's not much room for enjoyment there, right? But enjoyment is stressful. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it. All constructs are stressful. We find ourselves, it's true, it's true though, if we pay attention to it. Enjoying is stressful, Right? Stressful, maybe we have to unpick the word stressful. I don't know quite what you mean by stressful. I don't mean sort of the extreme of stress where we're talking kind of burnout, uh, collapse, uh, floods of tears, uh, shaking, uh, being over-caffeinated or drunk or something, right? That are coping with big relationship breakdown drama, speeded up heart rate, you know. Maybe if that's what you mean, most stressful. Not all constructs <laughs> lead quite that far. But when we're close to ourselves, we see that it's just of the nature of having this human apparatus being impacted by all these senses we have, right? Just the fact of seeing stuff and hearing stuff and tasting stuff and touching stuff and feeling stuff and imagining stuff and remembering stuff right as well as the the senses that we don't even have names for in in english or in our culture the ways in which we kind of the empathic senses of the way we just kind of pick up the vibe in a room for example that all of that is stressful not necessarily in a in a bad way it's just oh it, it has this kind of, it's, what oh, might be another word, it's, um, oh, what's friction. Yeah, friction, it could be jarring, There's a, it's provocative in some way, demanding, yeah, yeah. It, it provokes some kind of, what, sometimes a very, very, very subtle level of stress, right? But when something happens, Bob Marley says, every little action, there's a reaction. Right? And something happens, something happens. Right? <laughs> when something comes in, something meets it. That's stressful. Right? Stressful just in terms of it creates a certain engagement. Actually, when we, if we really attend to the fact, if we really engage with the fact that, hey, all constructs are stressful then increasingly we realize that the fact that all constructs are stressful, I can really stop giving myself a hard time for the fact that I'm, I'm like this or like that. It's normal. It's like I live in a stressful world. 
Maybe that's obviously New York City, right? I live in the bucolic French countryside. But you know what? It's still a stressful world. Even if it's sitting in the morning, I'll paint you some beautiful picture of my home life, right? I'm sitting outside in the morning because it's springtime and it's green everywhere and there's a little hint of the sound of the river that runs through the Mulan property and the wind in the leaves is just uh, the bamboo groves that are very beautiful at the Mulan along the river and the springtime bird song is doing its thing and I'm enjoying and I'm feeling very spacious and expansive. That's stressful. <laughs> it's like we, we tend to expect um, or hope for non-stress from our practice. We, hope, we, we tend to hope for, or certainly I got into this practice expecting some kind of like just complete putting down of stress. Maybe, but I think that's called death. <laughs> right? I don't know, because I haven't been there yet. At least not this time around. Right? But maybe death is profoundly unstressful. Meanwhile, life impacts. So there's something actually liberating. This isn't supposed to be so like misery guts Buddha saying, you know, we'll go construct a dukkha. This is, like, this is the good news, in a way. It's like, it's that, and it's really striking to sense the Buddha, like, just tracking experience, tracking experience, tracking experience, trying, as he'd been done for like five or six years since living home, leaving home, to do all these super ascetic, transcendental experiences, right? To try to get out of this stressful realm, this stressful life, this stressful body, trying to get, trying to lift out of this human life. And then there he is, our tracking experience, and realizing, oh, all constructs are stressful. It's like the fact that life impacts us, the fact that stuff happens and elicits a response, that's normal. I can relax this kind of weird expectation I have that I should be impervious to the touch of life. Actually, would we really want to be impervious to the touch of life? Because some of that which we're calling stressful, it's like the touch of being touched by, being... um, impacted by beauty as much as by pain. Like having ourselves be moved by life. And in that sense, you know, stressful is a bit of an unsatisfactory word, but it's sort of kind of the one that fits with dukkha. We might even say all constructs are impactful. All constructs elicit uh, an engagement and therefore elicit and this is where this part of the stress, a certain rub between any sense of self that's there. And we explored that yesterday, and the, all the ways in which, from the, from the very, very subtle to the, from the very expansive to the very coarse, it elicits a sense of rub between any sense of self that's there and any sense of world that's there. So, Whatever the the different ways that can form and unform, 
to have any sense of self and to have any sense of world creates a friction, a rub, a certain stress. And that's not to take a position about life being suffering or life not being suffering or anything else. It's really an invitation to feel the rub, engage with the rub, care for the rub, listen to the rub, find out in each construct, what is the rub in this moment? Because if we don't find out what the rub is, we, we make all kinds of assumptions and usually blames on what the rub is. And it's usually your fault that there's a rub. Right? Or their fault that it's a rub. And blame really increases the rub. Right? Increases the friction, increases the dukkha. Or it goes inwardly, similarly, oh, it's my fault. I'm such a... I've done it again. The blame increases the contraction, what we were looking this morning, right? The the feeling of solidity of self, the feeling of separateness of other, increases the rub, increases the friction, increases the stress. So in that sense, oh, sabbe sankara dukkha, all constructs are stressful. To take that, not as a position, not as a philosophical uh, dictate about the way life is, but as an invitation to attend to the rub. And then, sabedamanata. Nothing has any self-existence. And the way I first heard that, all phenomena are not self doesn't even, it's not even a sentence. <laughs> why, after all these like decades of practicing Dharma in the West, why do we still persist on using this weird formulation called not self? Everything is not self. Doesn't it, what? I, I really, I, for Dick, I repeated that to myself. I, still, I, I, I get experientially to what it refers, but it seems a very clunky way to try and express anything. But actually, I, nothing has any self-existence. Doesn't that? Isn't that just better grammatically? <laughs> right? And also, at least to me, it, it's it's. It takes away, it takes away this weird dichotomy that we explored yesterday, right? The tendency to um, to affirm a self, or then some this weird Buddhist idea that I now have to negate a sense of self. Rather, it's an invitation to see. There's there's all the senses of selves, and I don't want to repeat a lot of what I said yesterday. But what if I if I tend and we were focusing yesterday on, the, on looking at the self-existence or non-self-existence of this one. But actually, that's not what it's all about. The Buddha didn't make a great, big, privileged category about me and my self-existence or non-self-existence. What's underlined is sabbedama. It's all phenomena. So we're invited to actually meet this phenomenal world and notice how we tend to give everything self-existence. You, and you, and you, and this, and that. It's very obvious, right, in some way. But then if we're invited to see that 
maybe nothing has any self-existence. Well, what, what would self-existence be? Because right. then we start to see that actually we, can't, we don't exist independently from ourselves, from each other. I can't actually isolate you or you because what am I going to do with everything else? You know, it's not Photoshop right, where you can just sort of paint out everything else. Maybe Photoshop has self-existence, <laughs> you know, and you kind of pick out the particular thing in that. And these these three, which I certainly heard as, as, as a lot of Buddhist dogma in the beginning, and I lapped it up because I was... I. I was like on board with Buddhism. I was on board with Dharma. It, meditation was changing my life. And if it said it in a Buddhist book, I drank it down and faithfully repeated it. All things are impermanent. Uh, da, 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 right? But actually, there's a, a kind of quite a journey from that to really being able to make use of those things moment by moment. And then we start to see, oh, maybe there's really a way to make use of the fleetingness of all constructs. Maybe a really a make use to attending to the, the, the rub of all constructs. Maybe a really a way to make use to, to listen to and attend to the way I fixate in such a way that gives things self-existence. And in that fixation, I lose... Um, perspective, I lose the context, I lose the interrelationship, I lose the intimacy, I lose the wholeness of things. And so it may be in the formality of meditation practice. I mean, just in attending to breath. We tend to think of attending to breath as being all about the breath. As if the goal of meditation is to get better at attending to breath. And as if success in meditation would be being able to stay with the breath for longer. And that that does happen over time. But it's about, there's way more than that happening. And to attend to breath is in a very, very direct way to learn about the fact that all constructs are fleeting. I mean, even the the breath. I'm practicing mindfulness of the breath. What, What breath? Is there anything called the breath? Right? I mean, where is the breath? There is no the breath. Right? It's just this kind of tide, this fluid, fleeting, unreliable. Right? Not unreliable as in not happening, although one day that will be the case. Right? But unreliable as in I can't latch on to the breath. Have you noticed that in meditation you try to just, oh, I want to get... Get so I'm really with the breath, as if I'll be able to get somewhere that's called being with the breath, and then I just kind of chill out, and that'll be meditation. But the breath doesn't exist; has no self-existence, so it won't let me do that. I have to have to keep coming to this moment's breath. And I notice that, you know, we talk about oh my, my breath being like this or being like that, but actually every breath is quite substantially different. It's different in texture. It's different in in duration. It's different in feel. So to attend to breath is to actually start to really rewire our nervous system, rewire our cellular understanding, rewire our cognition about how we can 
inhabit the fundamental, fluid, changing, fleeting, impermanent, unreliable nature of experience. The fact that your mind comes and goes and you get lost in thought and come back doesn't matter. Actually, the noticing that you've gotten lost and the coming back, that's also teaching you something about the fluid, fleeting, unreliable nature of experience. So the sincerity with which we're willing to keep doing this fabulously low-grade practice that we're doing, where we keep getting lost and we don't stay with the breath very long, and etc., etc. The sincerity with which we engage that is powerful and important. Way more important than how long your attention might actually stay with the breath. Actually, your attention stays with the breath for that long. Because then it's, it's a different moment, a different breath. Somebody asked the Buddha once, how long does a mind moment last? And, he thought, and first he said, I, I can't give an example. And then he said, oh yeah, okay. He said, a mind moment lasts as long as the gap between me doing this and the sound appearing. A great description. <laughs> okay. And we learn about the stressful nature of constructs just in attending to the breath. There is a, there's a way that we touch into sometimes of an unconstructed contact where we just feel nobody is doing anything to anything. There's no rub. There's just breath. It's happening by itself. I can't say what's making it happen. I can't say what it is that's knowing it happening. It's unconstructed activity. Asankara. There's no sankara, no construct. And, exquisite as that may be, we're often, even when that's not happening, we're learning about the, what we've just been calling the rub, or the stressful nature of construct. We're learning about, oh, this is what happens when I make myself into the meditator, and I make myself, my breath into the object. And when I'm trying to be the one attending to the breath... And then similarly with the, the non-self-existence. Like we just said, there is no thing called the breath. There's just there's the process to which we give a name. And if we're not careful, we believe in the name so much that the process gets a little bit lost and the name takes on more reality than the process. But the breath doesn't have much reality to it. The bell doesn't have much reality to it. The sound of the bell... The sound of the bell is just that. It's the, actually, the sound of the bell is the sound of the words, the sound of the bell. Oh, that didn't sound very nice. There's no comparison. The sound of the bell, oh, I, know, I, I know what that is. And then in my mind I go, bong, I know what that is. Right? And, but then... So... You 
You know, the, these are real kind of, like I said, sort of Dharma 101. They're, they're real chestnuts of, the, of the, the, these three marks. And yet there's ways, whether in the formality of meditation, like I was just explaining with the breath, or whether in one's life, it's like I found these to be really like compasses for the heart's attunement. I often reflect that on the road. I'm often, I travel a lot. Like this trip, I'm five weeks away from home. I went from home to Paris, to Brussels, to London, to here, to San Francisco, back to London, to, and then to Amsterdam and Utrecht, and then home. I'm home for four days, and then I go to Wales on a retreat, and et cetera, et cetera. And remember yesterday? Confined and dusty is the life of the householder. Open and free is the life of the homeless one. And partly there's that feeling of open and free, life of the householder one. I was saying to someone yesterday who was you know, complaining about not liking airports. I love airports. You know, that feeling of free. I love wheeling my little leg. However long I'm away for, I only travel with carry-on, generally. Mostly, I like that feeling. Walking through the airport, the... <laughs> open free is the life of the homeless one but yet also it's like just seeing all kinds of shit happens right traveling see you John <laughs> things go wrong flights are delayed one can't get the food that one would like to eat the comforts of home and the rhythms of home and the familiarities of home are absent People don't realize what a wonderful human being I am because they don't know me, and etc., etc. Right? Oh, all constructs are fleeting, unreliable. The fluidity of travel. You know, travel, any kind of travel, particularly, you sit in a bus, sit in a train, and watch the world go by out of the window. Right? But with the mind of practice, actually feeling the way... Think of ourselves generally as moving through life. Here's a planet called the world, and I'm moving through it. But actually, if we really look at the mind of practice, we might feel that life is rather actually moving through us. Awareness is here, like this basic receptivity, and life is just moving through it. Fleeting. Fluid. And we see that all all constructs are have a rub to them. And it's interesting to just the, the kind of fun, the sort of basic, low level often, unsatisfactoriness of things going wrong, of flights being delayed, of, the, of uh, not being able to find food that might really suit one's temperament or wishes or whatever. And just like, oh yeah, life goes wrong. Or at least I call it wrong, which makes it seem like it's my fault or somebody else's fault or etc. But actually it's just that life goes and somehow it actually hasn't designed itself to conform with my wishes. And we start to see how preposterous it would be to expect life to organize itself to conform with my wishes. And then actually the, the ways in which things don't conform with my wishes start to feel like a particular kind of little blessing. Or a, a, a particular kind of little joke. A particular kind of little reminder. Like, hello Martin, life isn't set up for your benefit. <laughs> and, you know, one, just the, to apply that to whatever your own situation is. How can one attend to the fleeting nature of all constructs? 
Right? In such a way that they work on your heart, that they work on your relationship with life. How can you attend to the rubs in whatever the context of your life is? In a way that uh, makes that engagement more fluid. And same with the, the non-self-existence. It's interesting, like I say, traveling, you know, being in different roles. So I arrive in New York and then I come here, I'm in a role of teacher. And then tomorrow morning I'm at the airport and I'm in the role of passenger. And then the ways, you know, we relate to each other differently depending on the role that we're cast in. And the role of customer. And people are very nice. And sometimes I get the good fortune to travel in a better class or the, the better area of the plane than others. And, oh, people treat me differently if I'm in one cabin or in a different cabin. And just seeing, it's like the tendency to believe in, to identify with, to make much of the role of this moment. Whereas it's, you know, it's so transparent, it's so empty. Which, which one of those roles am I? It's preposterous. So, we started off yesterday speaking about emptiness and love. Emptiness, again, not as a position, not as a state, but as a way to attend, to, to render life and experience to us in such a way as to have it be malleable, available, transparent, workable so as to have the stuff of our life be the way in which we find the rub and in which we find the liberating possibility. And speaking about love as really the way all that happens. Love as the willingness to be in contact with. Love as the willingness to let that rub, to let that self-identification, to let that uh, moment of reactivity be brought in to the embrace of awareness so that it can be felt into, find out about, found out about, and freed up. And if, that's the, if these reflections somehow um, remind us of that, inspire us to that, uh, turn our interest in that direction. Then you know it's my hope that that's really for the that the benefit of that that can be such a blessing in our life can come alive for for us for each one of us for those we have contact with uh, for a world in need of love and flexibility and the capacity to listen to each other and understand each other. So may it be so. It may be that these reflections give rise to questions or reflections or explorations of your own. It may be, as I said in my invitation to be bold, that other areas of experience uh, come forth. It's all very welcome. So, oh, okay. Yes, Becky. Hi, thank you. Um, you touched on it a little here. Um, but I'm curious for you to say more about time. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's a mistake. When I say one day that I'm going to talk about something the next day, the chances of following through on that are often slim. Um, So partly I was thinking about it at lunch, and partly the the reason I didn't get into it so much was I didn't want to get into something that's sort of um, abstract or philosophical. I didn't want to talk about the emptiness of time in that sense. So I'll try to respond because I said I would and because you've asked me twice, so I better. (laughs) In a simple way. Firstly, just the recognition that, that, you know, we tend to think of time as static. We tend to think of time as having self-existence, in other words, right? And we can point to it measurable by the clock. A clock minute is a measurable... But our subjective experience of time doesn't have any self-existence. Right? Sometimes it goes fast, and sometimes it goes slow. So that's weird. Right? Sometimes it seems to stop. Sometimes it seems to really open up. Now, sometimes in meditative experience, time can really, really, really open up. Sometimes in very profound ways, but sometimes in just really dull ways. Like you sit for a seeming eternity and you go through all these machinations of your mind and then you open your eyes and see that three minutes have gone by. So what does that say about the self-existence or the fixedness of time? And the other thing that I think is very helpful, if one senses, which maybe is the case because you've asked about it twice, that one has some kind of problematic relationship with time there's a certain weird irony that the more you slow down the more time you have so I would encourage you to try that and see if it could possibly be true (laughs) right and I don't mean that when you're when you're uh, when the bus is just about to leave you might say what Martin says. <laughs> right. Whatever speed one may be moving at externally because of conditions, there's this way in which you can just... the practice of slowing down internally. And you might notice that just you making a cup of tea at home and you find, if you check in, that you're making that cup of tea faster than you need to. Usually we're doing things with some inner sense of imperative... Right, we drive along, along to the destination called having the tea made, which immediately goes drives us towards the next destination of getting to the chair to sit down to drink it, which immediately gets us to the next destination of getting the tea drunk so we can carry on with what we're doing. Like that's pathological, except it's very normal and human, right? And that creates our subjective experience of time because time is always leading us somewhere, right? as well as the, constru- the way we construct a familiar, comfortable sense of time based on the way we remember and the way we plan, etc. So as a way of just testing out the way time might actually be or not be, s- slow down and see what happens. Right? In the midst of finding yourself in that imperative of driving yourself along towards the destination of having the tea be made, what if you just really slowed down? The, eye, the sense is, if I slow down, everything will take longer, right? But the subjective experience is, if I slow down, I feel more time and space. It's like the moment opens up. The moment becomes more spacious. 
And, you know, like, like uh, in, sometimes if people have a car crash or something, in the few seconds that it takes them to, to you know, be thrown around in the car, it's as if people will often report everything somehow really, really slowing down and them having a very, very precise memory and sense of exactly what happened. And you see that represented sometimes in films or something, right? And so too, in meditative moments, the, the, with a very fine attention, the duration of one breath can feel like it lasts for, for an, a vast amount of time. So consciousness is vast, and everything can open up to the vastness of consciousness. Time can open up in vast and unimaginable ways. The sense of space can open up in vast and imaginable ways. And don't take my word for it, but the best way to start to get a taste of that is to slow down internally so that you make room for the vast, unimaginable, free nature of time and space and self and world. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to get back to you on it. (laughs) Okay, okay. Yeah. Thank you. So... um, Talked to you about this at the break. Um, so, well, you made a statement earlier about all of all of the universe supporting us. I don't remember the exact. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then um, that brings in horrible things like genocide and you know horrible things. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's like part of the American psyche right now is Trump. And he raises, with a lot of people, uh, a tremendous anger and fear. Mm-hmm. Tremendous. Mm-hmm. Because of the potential of what he's doing or the injustice. And like I said, it's got to be worse in other places. So my question is, um, what do you have to say about it in terms of practice and mm. your beliefs and dealing with anger and fear and yeah, and this, in that way? Okay. So there's two parts. I'm going to separate them out a little bit. Right. The first part is the sense of, I pointed to, suggested that every condition in the universe is supporting us right now, to which I fully understand one could raise many, 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 many objections. Right. So I'll try to unpack that part first. And then I'll try to refer a bit more explicitly to the kind of the concrete situation with the feeb- what I've been calling the febrile political atmosphere and the, and the fear and the marginalization and the isolationism and all the other uh, worrying and painful and dangerous trends that are happening within that. Right now, can you find in your experience, an unsupportive condition. Anything that's not allowing you to be here right now. Right here, right now. Yeah, because that's all we've got, right? No, that's what I mean. Every condition in the universe. And the universe, in this moment, right, all we can, without abstracting a sense of what the universe is, this is the universe, right? This is the universe, and every condition in it is supporting you to be here. The fact that you're here is the proof of that. And that's a very, very profound support for us. So in any given moment, right, but particularly moments where there's a certain interiority with yourself, 
letting yourself feel the way this, this universe, the universe of that which is right now, sensed, felt, heard, seen, smelled. This is the support. This is the invitation to rest in the embrace of life and have life hold you, breathe you, live you, right? which it's already doing. Life is breathing you. It's animating your consciousness. It's moving your body. But the tendency is to self-identify and self-claim. No, what do you mean? I'm, I'm breathing, I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm doing. Well, good luck with that. Right? But it's exhausting. So... The, the, I totally stand by what I say. Every condition in the universe is supporting you. But if we start to abstract what the universe is, that's where we find all the objections. Right? And we'll deal with the abstract in just a moment. But it's like, if you want some of the resilience and capacity and strength to deal with the vicissitudes and difficulties and challenges of life, to have the resource of being to, of, to be able to actually taste. It's not reminding oneself, oh, all of the universe is supporting me, like an affirmation or an angel card, right? It's, it's to let oneself actually feel the way life is doing this. I don't have to be so responsible, right? There's things I do have to be responsible in life for, but breathing isn't one of them. Having a body isn't one of them. Having a mind isn't one of them. And maintaining anything isn't one of them. And it gives us access to a sense of non-doing. And we find the more we have access to that sense of non-doing, the more it's able to carry through mysteriously, even into realms of life where we might look quite busy. We can look like we're doing this and going there. and But the feeling inside can be one of non-doing. The feeling inside can be one of, oh, life extending the arm, life doing the speaking. And I think, did I say something about that yesterday or this morning? Like speech. I find a very interesting object, partly because I do it, I'm talking a lot, right, teaching. But the fact that I don't know what I'm going to say. And here it comes, more and more of it. <laughs> <laughs> But not just in teaching, in any moment. You know, it's like, oh, I de- we always talk about, I decided to do such and such. I decided to speak about, I decide. We don't decide. Not really. We just, we're impacted by, right? there's the rub of constructs, and a response happens. The response may be more or less reactive. The response might be conditioned by difficult emotions, which tends then to make for a clumsy response. Or it might be a kind of free and wise response. But the more we're able to sit in that, that fundamental way, life, consciousness, body is all already happening, the more we're able to get out of our own way and have our participation in life feel like a free participation. And that is very much a ground of being able to engage with the next part of your question, right? The hows and whys and the anger and the difficulty and the, you know, I've been speaking with a lot of students recently for whom, you know, the family stuff, very, very, very different. Somebody who's, uh, you know, parents of and all fa- other family members you know, are on a completely different side of the spectrum. And because of the 
excessively charged nature of the unusually, you know, it's not like a normal right-left thing, right? Very, very, very painful. So, in the abstract, because right now it is abstract, I'm not sure what I can say about the what to do about this and what to do about that. Also, you know, there's, there's, there's all kinds of people who are much better trained than Dharma practitioners in how to respond legally, um, you know, whether it's lawyers or whether it's activists or whether it's uh, various kind of uh, organizations that promote uh, human rights or whatever it is. I think th- those have a lot to offer. Sometimes we expect too much from Dharma practice, like as if my meditative training should prepare me to do everything. What your meditative training really prepares you for is the capacity to, n- to inhabit a certain non-reactive place. What our Dharma training helps us do is to be able to stand up for what we might believe in in various ways and without demonizing the other. That's the crucial contribution of Dharma. How that will get expressed, I would say, get the support of the lawyers or the activists or the people that have the skill set and have developed the range of skillful means to do that. So I think activists and lawyers and civil rights organizations have a lot to offer to Dharma practitioners who have got the, who are developing important qualities of heart but then you need to ally with the people with skillful means. Similarly, people with skillful means can benefit a lot from the, the Dharma uh, s- skill set, which is how do you disagree with someone without demonizing them, without othering them, without putting them out of your heart, right? without creating between you and them the same di- dichotomy and dismissal and otherness that you're criticizing them for doing to other people. And you see that that, as much as the kind of the, the liberal view can be one of being very inclusive, and we've got you know of all kinds of people, despite regardless of uh, ethnicity and religion and background and orientation and identity and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. It's like everyone's included and loved, except for those people who don't include and love people, and they're the bastards and the wrong uns and the ones we've got to kind of overthrow. And there's a certain truth to that, except, hold on, there's, I've, just, I've just done to them the very thing that I'm so upset about them doing to others. Right? Albeit not having done in, in, in such a destructive outward way, but where do destructive outward action comes most originally from the way we do that inwardly. Um, I don't, you don't even have, I'm just going to... The, the challenge is, for me, I can see what you're saying about not demonizing. But I, I, uh, I'll reference Hitler. I'm Jewish. My closest reference to sure. evil. Sure. Uh, I don't. What I and I'm not asking you to answer this. I'm, I'm wondering how do I take the attitude, um, or the approach that you're you're talking about, but still understand that that action has to be taken mm. or believing that action has to be taken that may not be peaceful mm-hmm. per se. That's, mm-hmm. that's the struggle. Because of not, not impermanent fear or impermanent um, 
uh, anger, but justified fear and anger. So, yeah. So I like the idea of what you said about um, not objectifying or having that be part of your repertoire in, I guess, figuring it out. Yeah. And seeing that everyone's trying their best. That's a very hard truth sometimes. But, in fact, I would say one doesn't even, it's not even important whether one can agree or disagree with that truth. But definitely, categorically, in my own experience, recognizing that everyone's trying their best, including the people that it's very, very easy to demonize or make into the terrible ones, the, the recognition that they're trying their best transforms the sense of relationship with them, transforms the feeling in the heart, and doesn't in any way compromise the, the, uh, the disagreement with the view and the willingness to participate according to whatever one's capacity is to, to uphold the values or the, the compassion or whatever that one believes in. It can feel like from the outside of that that to say that they're trying their best is somehow to let them off the hook or to condone what they're doing. But that's not, that's not how it works experientially, I would suggest. So I know it can be very contentious for some people, the idea that everyone's trying their best. I would invite you, you don't have to take it on, but I would invite you to try it on and see what, what might it do to the relationship, to those who are easily identifiable as the bad ones, if you like. What might it do, just to see, to consider how might it be, how could it even be, that that one is trying their best? It's what they're trying their best towards. Right, well, when I mean that, I mean they're trying their best for exactly the same things that you and I are trying our best for. They're trying their best to be happy. They're trying their best to be loved and approved of. They're trying their best to feel okay within themselves. They're trying their best to, to be at peace. Etc. And my God, how must it be to live in that body, in that mind, when that's your version of trying your best? When, though, when that's what you think is going to get you to be loved and feel happy and peaceful. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Kyle. Hi. Uh, this is um, a question about how you were talking about how you know we're all these weren't your words, but we're more empathic than we really uh, give ourselves credit for. Right now, um, you know, I'm going through. Um, I, my question is about um, practice and decision making, mm-hmm. um, because um, you know I'm going through um, a period right now where um, I'm under a lot of stress. I have a lot of decisions to make. I mean, even from very superficial ones like what what class to take next term all the way to how to establish myself in a new city, um, uh, which, uh, which spiritual society to belong to, you know, when I'm there, all these, all these things. And then just a lot of logistics. And, um, you know, I can be someone who's very, you know, overcautious about things. Um, I can think that if I invest myself in area A, I'm going to get screwed in area B and it's Mm. all black Mm. or white. And, I get very, very nervous and tense about what decision to make in any given area. Right. And um, I was wondering, in practice, is there a way that we can... Yes. Re- yes. <laughs> take, take care 
like attend to all the things we've been speaking about in terms of letting it be available to your experience and caring for. Take care of the nervousness and the anxiety and the the tendency to speculate. Take care of that. Don't worry about the decision. It doesn't exist. You've never made a decision and you will never make a decision. (laughs) Take care of the anxiety. That's what creates the feeling of decision-making and the pressure of decision-making and the sense that I've got to make all these decisions. You don't have to make any decisions. They'll make themselves. They always have done. We call it making a decision. I know this sounds a bit weird, but we call it making a decision. But actually, we'd be just being influenced by conditions, right? And there's some sense of not knowing and not knowing, not knowing, and then we do something. Or like Yogi Barra said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Right? Now, that's the, very, that's the really free, gracious way through. Come to the fork in the road, take it. Everyday language, we say, oh, same for me, I have to make lots of decisions. When to go, where to go, how to go, what to do. But you know, often the feeling of indecision, the feeling of not knowing, is, is very uncomfortable. So the feeling of not knowing and the discomfort produces anxiety... And then the, we think, oh my God, the solution to the, the anxiety is so awful. What's the solution to the anxiety? I have to move from uncertainty to certainty. And then I'll feel okay because the anxiety will be gone. What will give me certainty? Making a decision. Right? That's why I say, take care of the, you know, see how you can really kind of parent the, the, uh, the anxiety. So you can care for that without which is what we usually try to do, I try to escape from the anxiety by obsessing over the decision-making. Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I do this? Should I do that? And if only I could figure out the right one, then I could get the anxiety to go away. Except you can't figure out the right one. You don't know right now whether you should go here or whether you should do that, whether you should do this class or whether you should do that. You will definitely know because you will do one or other class. You will come to know, right? But right now you don't. So rather than trying to assuage the anxiety through fixating on where you, which decision will give you certainty, care for the anxiety. Care for the anxiety so that it's not ruling things. And then you'll find that, um, that you just do one thing or the other. I'm, not, I'm trying not to take up mic time here, but what it's if okay. it's keeping you up at 3 a.m.? You know? Care for the anxiety at 3 a.m., right? Drink hot milk, <laughs> or whatever, it, or whatever it might be, you know, or just, or, or like, just tend, like, put your hands on your heart and tend to yourself. But, the, but what you're doing at three a.m. isn't that. What you're doing at three a.m. is: should I do this? Should I do that? What if I do this course? What if I go that? What if I move here and then that happens? What if I belong to? Right? That doesn't care for the anxiety. Actually, is constantly re-stimulating. The, the feverish thought re-stimulates the anxiety, and then the anxiety tries to get assuaged by going back to the thought life. Right? That's the that's the loop, and then we call that trying to make a decision. Care for the anxiety, like like that's what I mean when I say parent it. Like you know, just like if you've got a, a child. That's, that's frightened and scared and anxious. You don't really need to like persuade it of anything, do anything. It's just like you tend to, you parent, you hold. You, and the holding itself is reassuring. And the, the young child, you know, just that kind of reassuring holding. 
it sort of will calm down. And so you kind of, uh, what's the word? Cradle, you know, to cradle the anxiety. Whatever way, just through attention, or actually doing, you know, drinking hot milk, I'm seriously, you know, to something that just cares for your state. And you'll find that, I guarantee, the relationship to the what I have to decide will change. Because it won't be any more driven by anxiety. Yeah. I essentially had the same question so that's convenient (laughs) Um, yeah that um, in a different form in the next two weeks there's like big things like my job is changing quickly I might lose my apartment there's all these sort of big am I going to be a householder be on the road for a while that I feel that I've asked a lot well, what do you want? Well, are you clear on what you want? And I'm like, and I'm, and I'm not fully clear on what I want. I see the allure of different aspects of the different situations, which feel quite starkly different from where I stand. Hmm. Um, and so part of my intention of being here today is to have space and time with myself to just listen and, hmm. not, and not be in, in this spot, but just to slow it down. Um, and there's a time-sensitive aspect um, and there are a lot of like things to you know be done in the meanwhile. So just in this like, it feels as if a, it's a wonderful opportunity. And this I, I always felt very um, nourished by and calmed and centered by the. And I've been hearing this message a lot from different people of the of the just trust the trustworthiness of the moment and allowing that to be the case and just like surrendering to that. Um, and yeah, and like what. Any insight or specific, like practical tips on continuing that to engage with that trustworthiness of the moment practice, like on my own or in the morning, and knowing in in a time of great flux. Well, I'm not sure there's a how-to, right? But whatever whatever has come alive for that from you. It's like what I sometimes call living in the light of one's understanding. We have some experience that, out of which we say, "Oh, that somehow showed me something about the trustworthiness of the moment." If right, if that's what you're calling it, okay. But that's nice. But don't you can't get back to that experience, and that experience isn't a substitute for this moment. What that experience has given you is given you some understanding of the importance of attuning to that. So now the invitation is to tune to it right here. And, you know, if people are asking you what you want and you don't know, let that be your answer. I don't know. I don't know what I want. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where I'm going. It's just true sometimes. Sometimes we know. Sometimes we don't know. Sometimes we partially know and partially don't know. And sometimes we don't know if we know or don't know. There isn't a right or wrong one of those. That's just, that's what knowing's like. I know, or I don't know, or I partially know, or I don't know if I know or don't know. And then there's the pragya paramita, the wisdom that goes beyond, the fundamental knowing. So if those are all the options, I know, or I don't know, or I partially know, or I'm not sure if I know or don't know, what's the pragya paramita? What's the fundamental knowing? 
Yeah, the know, just the, 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 the knowing which one of those it is, just the knowing that I don't know right now. That's okay. Well, knowing that I know. If you know that you know, do what you know. If you know that you don't know, listen until you know. If you know that you don't know, wow, inhabit that space of infinite possibility. And if you know that you don't even know whether you know or whether you don't know, stop for a while and see what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, actually, I wasn't sure if I should try to uh, get the microphone, but <clears throat> I'm not talking about politics. I just want to point out that my sister and I have come up with various um, terms rather than speaking the actual name of he whose name must not be spoken. Um, or as it go, he who must not be named, I think is how it goes in the Harry Potter books. Um, we will come up with various pejorative things like the orange one, the marmalade hairball. Uh, we decided that we would come up with something that was free of pejorative baggage, so we settled on the dingo. And my sister... Tell, told me last night, we were discussing last night, um, that when she considers the dingo, um, she looks at him and sees a little boy who did not get what he needed and is clearly badly damaged and deeply um, wounded on some profound level. And whether it was, you know, terrible experiences at the military academy, I can only imagine, uh, or just, you know, bad genes could be something as, as uh, unavoidable as that. But something made the dingo the way he is. Mm. And in a way, he's almost as much a victim as other people are a victim of him. Because it's sort of like snowballs. And victims beget more victims, and madmen beget more madmen. Hmm. So um, the idea of uh, being compassionate is not to say all oh, poor sweet baby, but it's a certain amount of understanding that you know something made him that way. I can't imagine what it could have been. It must have been horrible, but you know he, he's that way for a reason, and he's unique. There's no one else on a planet that's anything like him. You know, and, and, and in a way that's kind of marvelous, in a way that's kind of scary, but something made him that way, and in a way he's, he's um, uh, almost comprehensible, but not quite. So, okay. just, just the idea of, of understanding less of, there's no us and them, there's just us. Right? And seeing Trump as us and not them yeah. or the other, to otherize them, yeah. is something that we're trying very hard to avoid. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Um, it's two things. One, I have a question, but the other, I said, I actually spoke to Martin because he mentioned earlier the. Um, the Mara course, which we'll be teaching this spring. And I did that online, um, and I thought of it. Oh, she's not here right now. But um, the question about, about um, 
being unable to sit. I mean, for me, it was I was sitting on a retreat last, this summer and realized that it, my mind was sort of making lists of things I needed to do, and there was this seductive quality to it. And I think it was that element of it. I felt like, oh, great. The Buddha, when Mars showed up for the Buddha, he got dancing girls and power. And for me, you could seduce me away from my practice by just giving me things to think about that I needed to do. Um, but it had that kind of energy. And so I just, I want to make a plug for, for Martin's courses online. Um, Very good. Thank you. All right. So now I have a question, which is following up on everything else. And I think it's the same question I've been on some level asking for years. So, and I'm going to distill it. We're talking about um, energies in the world and people who are bringing into the world and often into our lives the energies that come from fear and shutting down and casting out. And, and that's them. But what is skillful means when that's what you're confronting? And it's now, it comes into the political world, but it comes in in our families too. When, yeah. when blame and rage and all of that energy of forms of Mara yeah. come at you. Yeah. Not just within, but you know, it was easier seeing it within, but now, yeah. how do you work without it? Yeah. Well, you know, it's like, if you get whatever the other is doing, whatever the other is saying, however badly the other is behaving, if you get reactive, you're reactive. If you get offended, you're offended. And if, you know... It depends what realm I think we're talking in, right? because there's, there's things that are aggressive, that are offensive, that are abusive, mm-hmm. right? And it may be that we're working in a realm, or a legal realm, or an activist realm, or, you know, where that's, that's our primary field of response is like how to make sure that stuff doesn't happen and how to protect the people to whom that stuff is happening, right? And so if we're speaking in that realm, I would give a different answer, but this isn't this isn't a conference for uh, our activists and lawyers and blah, 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 right. So the part I want to, without dismissing the vital and important and powerful work that that is, right. The part I would speak to is just that if you're offended, you're offended, right. And it's more as a, the, if the what we're interested in is the Dharma practice part of it, and that's what we're interested in today. Without without dismissing the 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 rest and the external response. Um, that's all about my capacity to be defended. What do I do? What is it that I make out of it that I make a big deal about, of me being offended? Or So whether it's a family member or whether it's a political view or whatever it is that we say is coming at me, it's, you know, the primary duty, maybe we could say, of the Dharma practitioner's response and the primary possibility in that is to say what am I doing with it who is this one that rises up as the offended or the um, you know whatever it is so it's kind of in some ways it's rather sobering to really take responsibility for our own rubs to use the language you were uh, taking earlier to take responsibility for our own um, configuration into a particular self-existence. Can I can I follow up and Please. bring it down to texture? Um, because I'm going to connect it to what we were doing today. Because there was a sense, 
Um, I had a little dog until very recently who, when he was a puppy and he was 10 pounds and you would carry him on the stairs, he would throw his hands out, his paws out in front of him to protect him. And what I was noticing in practice today is that that tendency in myself of how hard it is sometimes to make contact. And that when I make contact with my own experience, that there's the refuge. It's right there. Hmm. And so the layering is that it, it feels... I'm, I'm struggling for skillful means to retain the contact with myself when something comes at me that has this power at the moment to even momentarily dislodge me. I can come back and try to unpeel it, but there's this moment of, and I know when I'm not connected, I feel ungrounded, mm-hmm. and it's hard and it's hard to respond so, skillfully in that yeah. moment. Yeah, and yeah that's what definitely. I'm, that's what I'm trying, you know. Definitely. So what happens in that moment? For me, there's, I'll, be, I'll feel flooded, and I'll feel a, there's a disconnect. I have a, I'll, I'll, that's why I think of the dog. You know, I've, I've, I've defended against my own experience, and I've left yeah. a space. Yeah, yeah, quite understandably. If we feel attacked, we might well feel flooded in that way. And as soon as, if one feels flooded or overwhelmed, the very definition of that is... There's no more space, there's no more resource, there's no more. And so for that moment, you're, you're resourceless in a way, right? That's part of what's of the shock to the system of being attacked in whatever way, you know, verbally, emotionally, or physically, you know, definitely. So in the moment of being flooded or overwhelmed, by its very nature, it's a moment where your practice isn't available to you, right? So what you can do mostly is... is like tend to that capacity to be grounded when you're not flooded, when you're not attacked. Because the more grounded you are when out of the blue, you never know from where it's coming, something difficult, challenging, unpleasant happens, it won't flood you anymore. It won't overwhelm you. It might still be extremely unpleasant, but the, gr- the ground can be established to, to, in such a way that it becomes pretty in, in unshakable to attack whether that's the attack of someone else or whether it's the attack of illness or whether it's the attack of misfortune or whether it's the attack of injury or whether it's the attack of death, all of which are, you know, in various order, unplannable order, are coming for us. Right? But if you wait till you're on your deathbed to try and deal with death, chances are it might be too flooding, right? too overwhelming. So... Like this ends, and death is most certain. Or we could say, to use your language, attack of one thing or another. People, illness, old age, etc. Attack is most certain. The time and nature of the attacks is most uncertain. Don't know where, when it's coming from. And then third part, so death is most certain. The time of death is most uncertain. What should I do? What's the appropriate response? And so the grounding, the tending, the making available to awareness, the caring for experience, in the moments where one isn't under attack, that's where the unshakable ground gets established to know an an unattackable life, an an imperturbable life, an unassailable life. And there's a certain unshakable sadha, a certain confidence that, I can, there's something here that's unoverwhelmable, that's unfloodable, 
and that old age, sickness, injury, attack and death can't, can't flood. Yeah. My teacher sat with an old monk as he was dying who'd been in the same monastery as him for a long time and he said, this is the way monks speak to each other, he said, oh, you're getting old now. King Yama will be coming for you soon. King Yama is the Buddhist personification of death. And uh, the monk, what was his name? Um, uh, I don't know, let's call him Tanpo. It's a name for a Thai monk. He said, oh, King Yama can search this whole wide earth. Tanpo is nowhere to be found. (laughs) Sits of a certain independent abiding. King Yama can't overwhelm. That attack can't overwhelm. But we tend to just live in a certain denial of old age and sickness and death and attack and things going wrong and relationships ending and uh, comfortable conditions becoming uncomfortable and financial loss and all the things that can befall us. And then we try to deal with them when they happen, which is exactly at the moment where we... And then we're flooded. And that's... What use? So... Don't delay, as it says in the texts. Oh, and and so I'll thank you because I think the thing that has spoken is the sense of care, Mm -hmm. the gentleness, the tenderness now, and the willingness to. It's on. on, There have been moments where it feels like wrapping around, hutching into something that Mm. is perhaps reactive, but almost uh, cradling might be the right verb. But that that that's got a. That's the piece of this Dharma practice or the, the teachings that I've heard over the years that really mm. has supported it. Mm. Thank you. Mm. Okay. Well, maybe one more. Uh, okay. And then we'll end. Yeah, whoever. Yeah. In addition to all of the stress, dukkha, demands, rubbing that uh, occurs constantly between ourselves and the world, it's a lot of that that is self-generated. Yeah. And um, uh, I have one in particular that is very, very clear and well-defined. And it's an obsessive thought. Mm. And uh, it makes its appearance from time to time. And uh, it, can be, it can blot out almost everything else in experience, in perception. Um, or it can be in the background and kind of just this this, this, this buzzing, humming, annoying mm. thing, uh, thought. Would so, you like to tell us what it is? No. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay, yeah. Um, sometimes it's... I, I, I hate it. I just want to be rid yeah. of it. Sometimes, sometimes it's kind of nice and comforting. Yeah. So, what is the emotion behind the obsessive thought? The obsessive thought is a sort of a story that relates to a specific object. Something Mm -hmm. self-protective, something that gives me an idea of security that I'm going to be okay. Right. So that's what... What obsessive thoughts are doing 
a lot of our thoughts are just mental clutter. They don't need investigating, they're just rubbish. Like, just let it go by, right? But some thoughts, they're not just that. They've got a lot of charge to them, like an obsessive thought is that, classically. And obsessive thoughts are an attempt to deal with an uncomfortable emotion through the obsessing about the object that we think would deal with it. I would put it to you that even if you could make the scenario that you're obsessing about happen, it wouldn't actually do the trick. I know that. You know that. Good. Absolutely Good. So that. now that you know it, when the obsessive thought is there, without trying to get rid of it or stop it, turn your attention to the, 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 the kind of deficient emotion underneath it. The longing for security, for example. And see how can you, right now, really tend to, like I was saying to Kyle about tending to the anxiety, how can you tend to that? And you may find that tending to the emotion that keeps on giving rise to the obsessive thought will very much change your relationship to the scenario that the obsessive thought keeps impelling your attention towards. There's something tender, you know, wanting to be cared for, wanting some security. But then, because you keep going off to the obsessive thought, the very thing that it wants, I want to be tended to, I want security, I want to be loved, it's like, oh yeah, but I need that, I need that. So you keep moving away from it. Actually, by coming back to it, you're giving that feeling exactly what it's trying to get through the scenario, but can't ever get there. You're giving it that. You're listening to it, you're tending to it, you're providing it with a kind of an an attention that allows it to, to be felt to be allowed to have some space, which is the very thing that you're expressing, wanting security, wanting to be cared for. Yeah. And then the obsessive thought becomes just a reminder. Right? We may get caught in it for a few minutes, and then it's like, hold on, this is about that tender emotion. And tend to the tender emotion, the obsessive scenario will resolve itself. Promised. Money back guarantee. <laughs> That's the advantage of Dana, right? I can give money back guarantees. Okay, thank you. So, it's five o'clock, so we'll stop here. Firstly, just I really want to thank those of you who are involved in New York Insight and have just supported the weekend in various uh, ways. And some uh, have had to leave. Greg and Kathy are already not here. But uh, with Cliff handling the uh, camera, and I'm sorry, I forgot. Amit uh, taking care of the sound and all, and uh, Peace and Katerina and others maybe, who ju- just managing the, the, the details so that we can all be here together, explore together. And you know, that, that sense of Sangha and the way in which we're all, we're all beneficiaries of that. Beautiful thing, of course, is that even those ones who I've just thanked, they're also beneficiary. You're also beneficiaries of this. So, is this being taped going Um It's. I'm not sure. It's been. It's being live streamed to the people here and there who are participating in it. And I'm not yet sure what will happen to the live stream. But the live streaming uh, has been sort of set up through New York Insight, and it's been run through Realize Media. And Jake and Giles are in the corner there who I'd also like to thank for managing in the background all the tech for that, have made that happen. So the recordings will be kept in some way, and news of that will be made known to you, I guess. <laughs> I don't know if there's anything else to say about that. That's right. Okay. And uh, 
realise media hosts online courses with various teachers and as Judith was saying, the, the course on Mara and dealing with the inner critic, uh, which I run each year, I think runs again soon. Is it in April? Maybe. Yeah. yeah. And it also realise also hosts Worldwide Insight, which is this live Dharma class with, that I lead quite a lot of and various other teachers connected with New York Insight and around the world and offering meditation instructions and giving reflections. And there's this kind of very cool interactive video thing where people can come and ask questions, etc. And that's probably just finished today. It's uh, on New York time. I think it's 2 p.m. every Sunday. The Mara course is offered where? Uh, so it's online at dot com. Realize with a Z dash media dot com. And otherwise, if you look on my website, martinaylwood.com, it's got links to all that stuff and to my online courses and world tour calendar and things like that. So, um, what did Greg and uh, no, John ask me also to say? So, I'll be back at the end of May to teach a residential retreat for New York Insight. It's upstate a little ways at a beautiful place called the Grail Center. The title of the retreat is Your Life is Your Teacher. To which when I said, John said, duh. <laughs> so he obviously doesn't need to come. But, um, and some of you were at the retreat that we had last year upstate in September. It's also, you know, like those of you who kind of have that sense of relationship with New York Insight and yet practice in this kind of, you know, city-based coming and going way, it's... It's great to go on retreat, right, of course, but also to go on retreat with people who you're not just... Often you go on retreat and there's people from all over the country maybe and you never see them again. But to actually to, to kind of sit and practice with people who are part of where you live and can feed into that sense of sangha. I know that since the inception of New York Insight and Gina's original vision, the sense of here being a kind of... Uh, of sangha being really at the heart of it. And that very first time I came here, I opened the door and I immediately saw the open hearts, open doors passage. And it was very touching. In fact, I immediately copied it and it's now on the Mulan website, on where I live as well. And um, some city centers aren't like that. So I just, you know, I, I really like coming here. I really like the, the spirit of what has happened and uh, can hopefully continue to happen and flourish here. So, you know, I just thank you collectively for the sangha that you've created here and continue to kind of help to flourish here. Yeah. So shall we end like we did yesterday because it was so nice to... Uh, and I don't need to explain it in advance because enough of you were here yesterday. And others can follow along if you wish. And so, like we said yesterday, kind of as a response to the sense of challenge in the world, just the invocation of the Bodhisattva vows as an alignment of our spirit and practice and intention to kind of contribute to the world that needs care and attention and love and practice. Countless are living beings, I vow to row them all to the further shore. Countless are living beings, I vow to row them all to the further shore. Countless are the poisons, I vow to purify them all. 
Countless other poisons I vow to purify. Countless other teachings I vow to understand them all. Countless other teachings I vow to understand them all. Countless other blessings I vow to bow my heart to them all. Countless other blessings I vow to bow my heart to them. And though the road is endless, I vow to walk it to the very end. And though the road is endless, I vow to walk to the very end. Yes, though the road is endless, I vow to walk it to the very end. Yes, though the road is endless, I vow to walk it to the very end. Thank you. Hope to see you again. Be well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.